Welcome to the D-Benefits podcast, a show in which we examine the amazing history we're privileged to be a part of. We're traversing an inflection point that is launching us from the modern era into the gig age. At least someone call it the gig age. Whatever it's going to be called, it's certainly not the modern era that started around the time of the Renaissance. We are moving into a time of information and technology in which things move at the speed of light and people are entirely connected. Stick with us as we engage thought leaders, innovators, and domain specialists in an effort to bring clarity to a world moving at hyperspeed. The D-Benefits podcast will focus uh, on the new age drivers shaping the world of employee benefits, health, wealth, and wellness. So welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time. We appreciate that the real estate between your ears is extremely valuable. And um, taking time out of your busy days to share that with us is much appreciated. And we appreciate you spending the time and we hope to continue to earn your listening time by providing interesting and engaging, valuable discussion. Today's guest is, I am very excited about to be introducing. He's a person um, that I knew in my childhood and has gone on to make a real impact um, on the delivery of insurance and health insurance and healthcare and healthcare outcomes um, throughout the world. Adrian Gore founded the Discovery Health in South Africa in 1992, Discovery, with a core purpose to make people healthier, enhance and protect their lives. Discovery is now a multinational and is renowned for Vitality, the largest global platform that creates behavior change and financially integrates this behavior into insurance and financial services pricing. This pioneering model of insurance coined Vitality Shared Value is transforming, transforming insurance markets and financial services globally and concurrently making a significant share of the global insured population healthier and ex extending their life expectancy. Certain global trends have made the Vitality Shared Value Model even more relevant today than in 1992. Given these trends, Adrian, through Discovery, applied the model to its own companies in the United Kingdom and is now transforming the global, transforming the global market by embedding its model into the world's largest insurers. This is achieved through an ecosystem of reward partners, technology assets, clinical capabilities, and actual data and structures to help partners integrate behavior, behavior change into products and pricing. The Global Vitality Network includes various national insurance champions around the world, including here in North America, John Hancock and Manulife. Combined, these insurers represent more than 30% of the global personal protection market with over 20 million Vitality members across 23 countries. Um, Adrian is the chair of the various discovery companies. He has been involved in numerous um, organizations and boards, notably uh, a governor of the World Economic Forum, Global Health and Healthcare Industries, and on the board of stewards, the World Economic um, Forum System Initiative on Shaping the Future of Health and Healthcare. Adrian's won many, many awards, both internationally and at home in F in the larger Africa and then more locally in South Africa. And I couldn't be happier or more pleased to introduce Adrian. So Adrian, let's start with um, your history of sport. Um, how did sport form who you are as a human being and your outlook on life? Well, David, I actually always liked sport, particularly physical activity. I, I was a natural footballer, and I say it without hubris. I never did it long enough, and I resent. I kind of regret giving it up. But I started racing motorcycles off-road, which is a really idiotic thing to do. I never was really good enough. I really didn't have the talent needed, and it became kind of clear to me. But... You know, studying actuarial science and racing motorcycles are not, you know, <laughs> kind of an actual bedfellow. So it's probably a good thing. But I will tell you one thing that, that really captured my my life early on was, was running, distance running, you know. And this is in the 80s, even in the 70s. It's a long time ago. I was a young, was a young teenager and an older friend of mine who became a doctor. He and I used to run together. And it wasn't a popular thing in those days. There was no data about physical activity and and. Uh, you know, better health, et cetera. It was a kind of a hunch. And in fact, there was a feeling you could overdo it, you know, et cetera. Um, but it, it, it was really something central to me. And I, I continue to do that. I ran a lot of marathons at university. And so it did frame my thinking about health and wellness and lifestyle choices. And to an extent, the 
the kind of evolution as, as the world moved into physical activity. I think our hunch as a company around physical activity and lifestyle choices and mortality was something I think deeply embedded in me from that kind of life experience and deep belief. I just knew anecdotally how I felt after doing this stuff. So, you know, it, it is a central part of my own journey, I think. Adrian, do you think, what, how do you think it impacts? So the, clearly there are their physical benefits and probably the correlationships with mortality and morbidity. And we could talk about that, but what about emotional and mental um, strength and capabilities related to exercise as well and activity? Well, I think the data, you know, the data to prove that stuff is, is more difficult. You know, we, we've got probably one of the biggest data sets in the world around correlating physical activity with, you know, lower healthcare costs, low le- levels of mortality. We've done an amazing amount of data through COVID to understand resilience, um, et cetera, from that. And we've done a lot of work around physical activity as a trigger event. In other words, people becoming physically active start to think about living a better life, stop smoking, you know, may eat healthier. So it kind of triggers other issues. I think the data on 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 emotional uh, aspects is less. We've checked less of that. I think we should, but I mean, anecdotally, and again, what we see is is remarkably strong. The correlations seem to be strong. In what areas, in particular? Oh, with, with, that's with mental health. So hold on. Let's just stay on you with you personally. <clears throat> the discipline around running, the discipline around getting on a motorcycle, and you know the efficiency of it, all of that. How how has that informed you as a business person? Um, has it lent? Is there any? It just and, and in your day to day life, managing life, the activity, the management of that activity, making it a priority. How does that inform other aspects of your life? I think I think firstly the discipline is a critical issue around. I've always been a disciplined person. I'm an extremely competitive person, and I think both of those kind of things coalesce in a in a sporting space. You know, and I, I think that has a massive impact on 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 how you live and your, I think your ability to compete and succeed. Um, I also think that the, the kind of just the emotional effect of that, it's anecdotal, but in my own case, you know, I could kind of track how I felt in my sense of, of well-being was, was fundamental. I'll tell you something. I had a pretty bad mo- uh, mountain biking accident in the December holiday, broke most of my ribs on, on my back and my front. I actually damaged my lungs slightly and I actually was physically inactive for about four weeks. It's the first time I haven't been physically active for decades. I tell you, I, I, I felt absolutely frail, down. You know what I'm trying to say? It yeah. kind of struck me that it's, it's a tragedy. Most people don't, not most, many people don't realize, you know, just getting your heart rate up and getting that blood pumping has such an amazing effect. I remember the first time just a few weeks ago, I was going again. I suddenly had this like epiphany. Jeez, I, you know, I'm back. I yeah. feel I'm back in life. So it, it, it's been a fundamental thing for me. I take it extremely seriously. There's not a day I go without physical activity. I've been skipping here while being on a Zoom call. I've been running stairs. I'm well known for running stairs. I travel a lot. Every hotel I get to, I do the stairs. I find the Skyrim. Fire escape, I do the stairs. I was in a fire in Chicago once where I'm the only guy I knew where the fire escape was because I'd run the stairs <laughs> in the morning. You know what I mean? So right. I might be overdoing your question, but the point, I guess, is it's a central part of my life, my, my lived experience. And, you know, it's kind of really, it shaped my discipline, my competitiveness. And, uh, you know, and it's just something that, um, you know, we, we should not take for granted. It's a gift, you know, Absolutely. if you can get out there. There's a question for later. Maybe it'll come up again because I don't want to go there right now. But, again, there are people in the world who maybe have challenges, physical challenges, um, from obesity, natural obesity, whatever you might want, might want to call it. I mean, clearly that's also to some degree that might be a life well, probably is a lifestyle choice in many, many regards. And some cases, maybe it's a genetic thing. Um, and those people are limited. Maybe we'll talk a little bit in a little while about how vitality can help those people as well move towards this more active lifestyle. But I want to just say one thing. If you ever find yourself in Vancouver, I don't know if you've ever been there, um, but there's a mountain called Grouse Mountain. And there's a thing called the Grouse Grind. I think it's an 1,800-foot elevation change. And it can take you, it took me a better part of two hours. I think the guy, the 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 quickest guys do it in something like, I don't know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes or something. <laughs> but this thing is just, it's relentless. So if you like stairs, find yourself in yeah. Vancouver, go choose, go do the, the grass grind. You'll love it. Um, so actually, I want to talk to that. I mean, you, you know, you talk, you've spoken in some of the interviews and the keynotes I've, I've seen you give. I've watched you on YouTube. By the way, for our listeners, anybody interested, you'll find 
Adrian to be quite a captivating speaker, very interesting insights, etc. So he's quite uh, reasonably prolific on 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 uh, YouTube. You can find him. But I've noticed that you've you've spoken to purpose and impact or purpose and values um, as a marker or a signal towards success. Can you talk a little bit more about purpose and impact, purpose and values, as a guide? Well, I think I think the look. I think business today we're seeing, especially in the post-COVID world, but I think the entire kind of referendum on capitalism that we've been through, business has to have purpose and needs to be a force for good. I think I think we're kind of settling down on that. And I think it's a fundamental issue. In our journey at Discovery, what's intriguing is that the we formed the company just at the at the kind of end of apartheid in South Africa. Nelson Mandela uh, had been freed, and you know. Building a health insurer in a in a country with too few doctors, the highest levels of HIV AIDS, quadruple level of, of disease burden, and kind of an egalitarian regulatory system like Obamacare. So kind of an obsession, rightly so, of not discriminating again. We we kind of we had no real choice about how you build a sustainable health insurance system. You know, you can't manage risk, you can't price it, you can't manage care through managed care systems, too few doctors. So the hunch we had, and again from I guess from my context, but the hunch we had was make people healthier. You know, if you could make people healthier, you could reduce the 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 kind of the healthcare costs. But what happened to us is we had this simple purpose that became our purpose from the get go: make people healthier, a set of core values, and we've we've kept exactly that framework from the get go of the organisation nearly thirty years ago. So I used to stand up with this purpose at like investor meetings and you know analysts and around the world and say our purpose is to make people healthier. And these guys, this guy's an idiot. What is he talking about? You know, we had to hear about embedded value and actuarial returns and, you know. But what's happened over time is that the world has come around to seeing that purpose is just fundamental. You know, this whole world of ESG and, you know, is, is such a, a powerful thing. So I, I can just tell you in my journey building our organization, we have, I don't know, over nearly 15,000 employees. They are extremely inspired by the purpose. They could care less about earnings and earnings growth you know, in the middle of organization, people inspired by making a difference. So I, I'm I'm a great, great believer in bringing out the best in people, creating a safe environment for people and creating an organization that's based on purpose. It's been a it's been a it's been a privilege to do. You know, it really uh, has been. Uh, I am gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make a leap because something we're trying to do in, in our business, we we've got a, a tagline called humanizing benefits and we're trying to have that inform everything. So I'm assuming in it here there's a whole matrix through which or a matrix is either, you know, intentionally built or maybe it just decretes where you have this make people healthier as the goal. It starts to inform all the activities of the business as well, I'm assuming. And do you see that that is the way people are evaluated in terms of their interaction with their workflow? Is that is that how it, it comes Oh, out? absolutely. Absolutely. So the focus on the business is make people healthier. I would my gut is if you spoke to 99.9% of our, our people, they would tell you why they're there and they know it. And I think through COVID, you know, this issue has been even, has been accentuated dramatically. So we just had a session now, you know, kind of, you would know this, uh, corporate remuneration and bonuses for executives, you know, it's a massive. So we're looking at that structure and work on how we build in this, make people healthier into these like shareholders would see as appropriate, you know. So Fantastic. it's a fundamental piece of, of, of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'll tell you, I'm maybe digressing and give me the space, but the, the formulation of vitality actually was 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 formed out of that because the obviously incentivizing better health is an obvious, how can I say, um, adjunct to make people healthier. But the, the, the original idea was someone bringing us a gym chain, a chain of gyms, and trying to offer us the opportunity to cross-sell into this chain of gyms. In other words, there's a gym chain of 100 gyms across the country, you know, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of members, healthy, young, going to join a fantastic client base to sell insurance into. You know, so it's kind of a classic cross-sell. Uh, in our case, when that was put to us, we had this obsession. We're young and, you know, kind of like idealistic and say, listen, we're not, we're not here to cross-sell. We're here to make people healthier. You know, what in this context could work? And we suddenly had this flip, you know, like a moment in time, an epiphany of saying, geez, if we could make these gyms available to our people, in other words, if you belong to our health plans, you go to the gym. You know, it was like a like a it's like obvious. We can get that be that it's like checkmate. It's a beautiful benefit, you know. But how could we do it? And we had this idea of what if you earn points to get there? You know, and so vitality was born literally in a day's idea. But to your question, I think the obsession with the flip around was like, listen, we got a specific purpose. We don't just do a cross-sell. You know, we're looking for 
And I think it's framed every single thing we've done, you know, to this today. To, to, and so to the point, if it's just about the money, um, it, be, it becomes somewhat humdrum. It becomes somewhat, I'm not, I don't know what the right word is. It, yeah, it, whereas having a purpose, you know, we talk in our, in our little office here about we're in the insurance industry. We're in the benefits industry. But we're in the business of humanizing benefits. It's a different yeah. thing, right? So it's kind of you're in the health and financial industry, but you're in the business of making people healthier. And that, that informs everything you do. That's outstanding. I want to come back to the, the, the start of the way everything started up. And I've actually got a question I'm really curious to, to get to. But before we go there, you've, I've, I've heard you say a number of times that you seek positive signals. And I appreciate or the, 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 the follow-up that I've heard you say more than once. This is not naive positivity. This is purposeful positivity. Um, and I'd like to know how that kind of, uh, how does that look on a day-to-day basis? What does that mean? How do you filter out, you know, negativity, wanton, I don't know, whatever the word would be, kind of, you know, that someone once said to me, there are two kinds of people in the world. They try to, the people, in order to feel good about themselves, they may push other people down and somehow feel higher than, and there are other people that actually just spend their lives climbing. Um, and in that is a whole, you know, there's, there's, there's a comment there that you need to be, you need to be vigilant about that positivity and, and, and notice what is negative. How do you filter that? Do you have a measure? How does it inform your life on a day-to-day basis? Well, I, listen, I, I think I, I'm naturally optimistic. I think, I think, but I do think your point is right. I think you have to work at it. It doesn't come naturally. That's, that's maybe the point. I think, um, our values, one of our values is innovation and optimism for the belief that you can't innovate unless you're thinking about the future in a positive way. And to your insight that I think is absolutely right, it's not about naive happiness and running around smiling and ignoring risks. It's about a kind of innate belief that things work out. You know, the world is getting better. You know, you, you can figure it out, whatever the problems are. So it's, it's a kind of intellectual, uh, how can I say, belief that you can make things work. In my own personal experience, when I'm feeling positive, I'm affected. When I'm negative and down, I'm ineffective. I've seen that, you know. So it's kind of a tactic as well as a, as a deep value. Um, but I'm a great believer. I think we've done a lot of work on this evolutionary biology around. I mean, our organisation being built on behavioural science. But you know, we evolved. We evolved millions of years ago here in Africa, as, as you would know. Um, you know, where the, the dangers were were physical. They weren't. They weren't. You know, they, they were physical. Eaten by a lion. You know. So how we stayed alive is we focused on danger. You know, we focused on looking out for danger. We are we are the, the, the offspring of those people who have the ability to seek danger, you know. Uh, and you will know if you go to a game reserve in a safari in Africa, which I'd really suggest your listeners do, it's beautiful. But you'll see the animals are having a terrible time. They are watching for danger all the time. Now, the point is the world has evolved, but it evolved only, you know, the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution. This is this is recent. But now we've got the opposite problem. The, the dangers are on our systemic, you know, the failure of government, the failure of healthcare systems, you know, those kinds of things. And to an extent, as you will know, that to make a corporation work or a government work, you need trust in your corporation. And that's best served by, you know, trust, optimism, not negativity, seeking positive in people, to your earlier point, building people up. And so to a point that we've got a natural evolutionary coding about seeking negative stuff, but it's a primitive urge. You know, a sophisticated urge is actually to seek the positive. And I, I'm, I, I, my point is not to be naively positive. It's actually seek the positive with the negative. You know, um, it's, it's about trying to get a balanced view. And you often find when you're seeking the positive, opportunities emerge. Our, our company was built um, just as South Africa was changing. It was a very, very volatile time. At the time, people were fleeing the country. There was potential riots going on as apartheid ended. And, you know, the democratic South Africa came into being. I, I can tell you, while people were distracted, we built a business. And I believe that today in difficult times, it's the best time to invest and to get going. So, sorry, it's a long answer. It's it's a very deep belief. I know it anecdotally in my own behavior, but I believe intellectually, it's an, it's an unfair tactical advantage if you can seek the positive, you know, seek positive signals, not just the negative. It's an outstanding answer. I mean, I know that in, uh, in Jewish philosophical thought, there's this whole, uh, you know, there's this 
there's the challenge between a, a godly or a spiritual soul or aspect to ourselves. And then there's the bestial side of us as well, which is, as you're saying, very primal, largely driven and triggered by emotions. But really in the human world, we we function on intellect. So the exercise you're, you're, you're describing is to initiate our intellect when we're when we feel a negative response and ascertain it, filter it before we just jump all over that and go down a spider hole, actually examine and and look for the positivity in the scenario because we're intellectually capable of that, which I think is an outstanding answer, which brings me to the- Can I I point on one thing? Just what's interesting about that is people think negativity is sophisticated. You know what I mean? Be realistic. You know, it's actually the opposite. Negativity is, is primitive. Right. You know, sophisticated is to actually seek the positive you know right. so often i'm often in you know our country goes through complicated issues you know in business you find you know people say you are you you you're as optimistic you know the the, the kind of the undertone is you're an idiot you're naive you know you know what i'm saying right. it's ironically it's sophisticated to be positive you know it's the other way so around make the point no it's yeah. a great adrian i mean you make the point well and you've demonstrated the point in clearly in what you've achieved in life which is outstanding so I want to actually bring that back. I mean, you were 26 years old. You know, it's one thing to say there's a 26-year-old upstart that went and created some kind of social media network or 25-year-old that went and created an app and did this. That area of the world is just naturally disruptive. It's new technology. It's new space. You know, to go out there and put your oar in the water and start rowing and become a gazillionaire or or make a difference and create an app that's purposeful and works and, and gets wide adoption, that's one thing. At 26 years old, to go up against an insurance industry, which is four or 500 years old already, and then dominated by, let's call it, certainly I would imagine the back in the day, the old boys club. To be 26 years old and say, I'm going to, going to go into that industry with all of its capital requirements and the effort required to actually get in there. I can't imagine you went into that with a vision of failure. You went in with a vision of we're going to disrupt you. We're going to do something different. So what was that experience like? I mean, you needed to recruit people. You needed to fundraise. You needed to sell that. Sell this. What was that experience like for you? It was actually an incredible experience. I mean, it didn't feel risky. You know, I, I I was working as a young actuary at a big life insurer, very successful life insurer. And I kind of growing up in a home where, you know, my dad was an entrepreneur and you know, I was exposed to business. I a young Jewish guy, you know, pretty typical stuff. And that's true of, I think, most people. But I was suddenly in this institutional world and I, I was just captivated by the scale and the impact. You know what I'm trying to say to you? Just... It was very entrepreneurial and amazingly run company. So it was, it was a, actually a treat. I think, you know, I've got a great schooling there. But it lit a fire in me, this concept of, you know, impact and scale, you know, of what an institution can do in society. And so I had this, I had this like just natural, how can I say I'm going to raise cabin and do it myself? You know, I don't think I thought through the risks. I mean, as an actuary in those days, you know, you could, jobs were, I think, plentiful, et cetera. So I didn't have a massive risk. But I do remember when I left and I raised the capital um, and I was, I took a one-week break and my daughter was just born. I had my first child. I remember sitting on the beach with her and thinking, that was the only time I thought, geez, do you know what you're doing here? <laughs> You've got a daughter to feed. You're doing, you know, but it, it, was a, it was a fantastic journey. And I, I learned just the, the, the kind of the importance of hiring and working with the best people. I learned the most remarkable shareholders that they themselves became one of the biggest financial institutions uh, in our country here. Um, I just learned the importance of good shareholders, long-term shareholders who share the same values as you do. And the business was built, I mean, it's a capital-intensive business, so I raised a lot of capital. But it was built of purpose and quality and values. In fact, the original business plan, it sounds very unactuarial, didn't have a didn't have a cash flow projection. It was actually based on the intellectual basis of what we were doing, the quality of the people. So it was a, it's been a wonderful journey. It's been challenging throughout, but it's been uh, it really has been an absolute treat. So I want to ask you about that then. Uh, you know, again, to your point, no cash flow projections. This wasn't that you came across to some, you know, deep pockets and said to them, look, I'm going to show you this kind of return and this kind of an exit. You came to them and said, here's an idea. Um, and I'm going to ask two questions. One was, was that you alone at that point? Did you have anyone else with you? And if that's the case, well, it can't just have been the idea. What would you say is the number one trait of you and anyone else that was with you at the time 
that demonstrated to these people, yeah, this is this is a good bet. This is going to be good. Well, I think, you know, working at a life insurer, what happened is as the country transformed, um, you know, health healthcare is a microcosm of society, you know, wherever you are. Um, we launched a health insurance product that, that I kind of led the development on. It was so successful that it gave me a sense of just the potential of this market. The market didn't have proper health insurance. And so, you know, on the back of that, I approached a, a small investment bank with the idea of using that dormant insurance license, using that as a, as a startup vehicle. I was alone at the time, um, but the investment bank that I went to had some really smart guys. I think I just lucked it out. They were incredibly smart guys, slow thinkers, I call them, you know, not jumping to conclusions, consider things very carefully, long-term players. And uh, we formed like an executive committee. When I say executive, they weren't executives, but they sat once a week and thought things through. And, you know, that they were like 45, 50-ish, very wise guys. And, um, I mean, I've worked around the world. These are still the most impressive guys I think I've worked with, you know, remarkable. And I think that that kind of coalescing of a young entrepreneurial restlessness, you know, with with a lot of experience, you know, just gave me a sense of, you know, I think just a, a good compass, you know what I mean? And uh, I'll tell you, in the st- at the start, you would know, starting a business is tough. I remember I was on the road selling, you know, we just never got membership, you know, it just took us a long time. And, you know, being alone, you might throw in the towel. You know, my shareholder said, listen, relax. Takes time. We're in no rush. You know, you've got to get it right. So the whole organization is built on values, financial conservatism. Things take time, you know. Um, so I, I think I was actually, frankly, quite lucky. I think the shareholders are trying to flip the business and they want to quickly exit. And, you know, I think it's probably much harder. So I recruited a guy I studied with, uh, Barry Schwartzberg, and then we built a team. Um, and I, the other lucky thing I did was always getting better people than we were. The people from the get-go were the smartest by long shot. I think if you look at our team today, there are thousands, literally, of uniquely brilliant people. And that's what's built the organization. We've got depth of talent. That's you know, So it's been, it really was a fairy tale start. I think really a lot of luck, frankly, to be fair. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing as well a, a, a combination of two things. I mean, one is confidence, clearly a confidence to move forward and born out of experience or just born out of maybe your sports your sports history, strong family, whatever it is, a certain level of confidence, but blended clearly and tempered with humility, which is a, it must be a very powerful powerful combination, especially when you're speaking to 45 and 50-year-old 50 50 old successful business people and pitching them ideas and the whole thing. Clearly worked well. So, um, when you started, what was the primary problem that you were looking at solving? Health insurance here was just costing too much and inflating out of control. You know, so inflation rates hard to be over like twenty percent a year. You know, premiums were going for twenty percent a year. That was the core issue. So the actual effect was deductibles were getting bigger, out-of-pocket exposure was getting bigger. More like the US, not like Canada, where you know, health insurance covers everything from a runny nose to a heart transplant. There is no public system, so to speak. So that was the problem. Um, and the solution we came up with, which actually happened after the company was formed, was a simple idea of medical savings accounts. You know, we pioneered these things way before I think many others. It, it had existed in US tax law, health savings accounts, but we kind of did it at scale. And the simple idea that, that when people spend their own money, they behave differently. We didn't know at the time kind of the this was like an ideological, you know, uh, rift between supply side control, managed care versus demand side, free market mindset. It's it's a riddle of ideological aspects in healthcare financing, but it worked unbelievably well. And I, you know, took time as I said to get it going. But I, you know, we, we hired an American health economist who came out with a talk here on, and I remember listening to this guy, and we had about a thousand intermediaries in in, in this big venue. We'd been struggling until then, and this guy told. Just some simple wisdoms. I mean, it was an epiphany for me. When I heard that speech, I realized we are onto something big. You know, the fact that when people spend their own money, they behave differently. You know, and I, I then kind of got on the road and talking to board, you know, boards of directors about, I'll tell you why your healthcare is costing you so much. Because you, know, you and your employees on the opposite side of the fence, they're consuming everything you're trying to save. You know, so we're going to change the incentives for you. You know, and the organization was always built on intellectual arguments, not, you know, these are your your you know your dental benefits you know with this limit. It's built on how's the health economics of how the plan will work, kind of a business to business pitch, and uh, we just got into a rhythm where it worked so well. 
it, it's a profound idea, you know, to be fair. Again, I think a lot of luck we, we got to this thing. My partner actually, actually, you know, said this thing is going to work. It was way too simple for me. I'm, I love complexity. A medical savings account. Well, what's the point of this? I mean, you know, it's a savings account, you know, for crying out loud. What are we going to do with this, you know? But it was so profound. And, and uh, we just did this. And, I, you know, the big thing was, of course, vitality. We figured out how you then incentivize healthy choices. Now, putting the two together, it just took us on a journey to life, to banking, to motor insurance, you know, globally. So it was really um, interesting evolution. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to some of that. So, so I actually want to just just pause. So, Canadian context. I started in the in the benefits industry in 1990, um, and I was living in British Columbia at the time. Now, provincially, our our universal health care is actually mandated federally, but it's managed provincially. Each province runs its own thing. Um, and in British Columbia, we've got a pharmacare program, that, or they have a pharmacare program. Other provinces don't, meaning that there is public funding for um, drugs in a certain fashion um, or uh, under a certain uh, regimen. Um, but I remember the days when I first started out, we on the group benefit side ensure the extended health piece. So you, the core would be the public health. The extended health would cover things primarily like paramedical practitioners, chiropractors, mm-hmm. physios, et cetera. And then the big one is pharmacy. That's really covered largely privately. The majority of drug spend in Canada is is private. And the rates in Canada in 1990 for an extended health plan were maybe five bucks per single, at least in British Columbia, and maybe ten, twelve dollars a month for a uh, for a for a family. You know, for these plans. Today, those rates are probably you know 120 to 150 for a single, 280 to 300 for a family because of the growth of drugs. So there's a conversation to be had about what's actually happening in the private spend world here. And it's actually driven a similar thought. And I seem to remember that I once saw, saw on a discovery website, because I, I referenced you guys a lot. My brother had been a member of, of the discovery program early on when he became an employee, I think late nineties, maybe early two thousands. And he said t- t- to me, David, you got to see this. It's outstanding. It's fantastic. And I started trolling and looking for some information. And I, I think I, it was on your website where I saw this triangle with, you know, with risk and, f- you know, frequency of claims. Obviously, the frequency of the claims at the bottom end are transactional and really not going to destroy, uh, not going to destroy a family's financial well-being. But there's a line at which things become catastrophic financially for a family. So you look at taking out this transactional spend and then putting that in the hands of the consumer to to spend. I never thought of it before of in terms of well, they will spend more wisely. Just thought of let's not let's no longer insure this and have it on a defined benefit basis, which has got the kind of renewal grind every year and the you know whatever happens with, with, with rates increasing. Um, but I guess that's I guess that's where the question that's where the question comes is that what you did do was you removed that catastrophic risk. I'm assuming you still insured catastrophic risk. And how fast was the adoption of that model? Did people get it? Uh, it, was, it was super fast. I mean, without, we, vitality, firstly, without the vitality. Without vitality. You know, I, it was, firstly, I think we did a few things that I think were quite smart. The deductible was affordable. So, you know, the other issue is that chronic illness was extracted out of it. So people with chronic illness were covered out of, out of the health plan. You know, so the savings account was really isolated towards controllable stuff. And I, you know, I would go into board of directors and say to these guys, you know, listen, if you paid for food by going to, I don't know, you paid Whole Foods, you know, X hundred dollars a month, and at any point in time you can walk into the store and take whatever you like off the shelf, you know, that food would cost. You know what I mean? Right. I'd, I'd buy prawns, not not yeah. bread. You know, you know what I'm trying to say to you. So right. you know, just getting that across, so things are controllable. Um, if people are empowered to, you know, to spend their own money differently, you get a different behavior. And the data as it emerged. We just underpriced our competitors. We just got rid of the abuse. I mean, you know, so ironically, freed up more money for you know, catastrophic events. So let us offer much more comprehensive coverage for hospitalization and chronic illness. And it's um, it, it's got a lot of, com- there's a lot of debate about it. Or, you know, do people have the ability to make choices in healthcare? You know, if you're sick, uh, uh, if you have perennial issues, if you low income and can't afford it. So there are legitimate debates to be had. But on balance, the plan evolved in a way that I think dealt with all of that, but really got us going in a competitive way. And in our country here, it's a standard process. I mean, most ambulatory care is covered through 
a savings account structure, you know, I can't, you know, to me, the idea of covering stuff that people completely control through a third-party payment structure seems inflationary, you know. Um, but we, we kind of evolved off that. I think the vitality piece then flipped the whole model, you know, into something about really focusing on the on the member, getting them healthier. Right. So um, before we go, there was a Vitelli. I, I want to ask you a couple of questions as well about enablement, enablement of business. I do want to come back uh, in a moment to talk about, um, as I've heard you reference, I've never, never really seen it before, and then went and dived, took a deeper dive, um, but this hyperbolic discounting, and I guess we'll talk about how that is, how you counter that with vitality, et cetera, and you can talk to how you've, how Vitality has made a difference. But let's just start with Vitality um, and the, the, the enablement, as we spoke yesterday before you know, in our prep, about could you have done this in the 1980s based on the technology that was available then? And then what's the hidden lesson for young entrepreneurs, for people looking to make a difference um, based on the answer that you kind of gave me yesterday? So the question just fundamentally is, could you have done this in the 1980s? Financial. I don't believe so. I don't no. believe so. I think a startup, I think a startup, as you pointed out, an institutional startup in the 80s would require mainframe computers in those days. So the actual capital and the cost of entry would be so high. I mean, I, again, just the timing was good in the 90s. You know, PCs and Pentium chips, and it's bizarre to think that a 386 Pentium, I mean, by today's standards, it can't run a spreadsheet, but I'm saying, we ran the business on that thing, but I'm saying you to run a, a complex insurance product with investment accounts and savings accounts, you need computing power. I think in the 80s, just the economics of a startup with a mainframe wouldn't have worked. So I think, again, I think it was lucky in the phase I developed it. Um, and then just as the digital age just accelerated to today, where we link our stuff to Apple Watch and, you know, through all kinds of platforms, it's always been about technology and the tech and the platforms, but to your point, I think, you know, there's no way I think we would have done that. Uh, the timing is good. So in, in that, if, if that, if you had that kind of an advantage in the 90s, I mean, a, a hidden message, I guess, just for some people listening today is that this technology that's kind of accelerating our lives in so many ways is actually empowering us as well to make a difference in a way, enabling us and enabling thought leaders and young entrepreneurs to do things that they possibly couldn't have done previously. I mean, this is, it's, it's a... It's a and there's no doubt. Yeah. It's, not, it's, it's an amazing world. Right. Uh, I think you you know barriers to entry are are super low, you know, right. and that's exciting for society. I think. So, uh, what about behavioral economics and where that was at the time that you were driving up vitality? I mean, it wasn't like you. Where was that even at as a discipline or as a research area at that point? It was it was nowhere. I mean, we hadn't heard of it, frankly. Right. <laughs> so we had this hunch of how you get guys to get into a gym, our client base into a gym, and we'd reward them for doing so. So if you do healthy things, we give you a reward. And that then spread to you know, prevention and nutrition and, and simply the ideas of rewarding things. There was very little understanding. I think Daniel Kahneman, kind of one of the fathers of, of, of behavioral economics, I think got the Nobel Prize around then for his work on loss aversion. You know, the idea that we're motivated more by loss than by potential gain. Um, but we kind of, what happened to us, I think, is we, we started to realize as behavioral economics came about that healthcare is a perfect case of irrational decision-making. And the healthcare is overconsumed, wellness is underconsumed. The healthcare is free at the point of care if you insure it to the earlier point, but the benefits are immediate. You see it. You go to the doctor and you get all this technology on paper, so you consume too much of it. Wellness is the opposite way around. Um, it's expensive at the point of doing it. You've got to go for a run <laughs> or miss or not eat that chocolate, and the benefits are 30 years away. So, you know, people don't do it. So, you know, you get to this, this mnemonic that I really like, 3, 4, 50, three behaviors drive four conditions that lead to 50% of mortality. You know, smoking, poor physical activity, um, uh, and eating badly. Those three things drive four conditions that lead to 50 to 60% of death. Question is, why do people make those decisions? And the reason is this hyperbolic discounting. You know, they, they discount the future at high rates of interest. They don't care about it. So the vitality, we didn't realize that what vitality was doing was breaking that that cycle by saying to you, if you do this today, you get rewarded today. And I can tell you anecdotally in the early days, I used to get letters from people. I remember a woman vividly who actually we picked up, she picked up cancer through her prevention, through some screening she went for. She told me she only did it for the rewards. She couldn't care less about the health benefits and whatever. She wanted the points. She wanted her status. 
So, you know, it's anecdotal, but but making the point that breaking the cycle of kind of the behavioral biases we have was one of the fundamental issues of vitality. And I think we've done that. You know, we did work with Apple around using the Apple Watch. And I think it's available in, in, in Canada with Manual Life, where effectively you get it for free. And if you're physically active, you don't pay. But if you if you aren't, the payments per month go up. So it's a loss. It's a loss framed idea. You've got the watch. You can lose it if you're not physically active. And we've seen unbelievable. So the data and the correlations to behavioral science is so incredibly strong. But I mean, I guess the humorous thing is we had no clue of the stuff when we started. <laughs> I'll give you one. Sorry, I'm, I'm being a bit verbose. But one, no, it's great. We did a, a, a JV with a Prudential in the UK. One of our big, it was a great partner. And that started our UK business. And we, did the, we took Vitality that was going well. And then I read a paper done by, I think, Gartner on what the Prudential, it's a British Prudential, what they're doing in the UK was pricing risk based on behavioral factors. And I was unbelievably annoyed to hear, I mean, super sophisticated stuff, really annoyed to hear how they were doing something of this level. We had a JV with these guys. So, you know, I got on the phone and I was annoyed. You know, how can this happen? Only to find out that was us. <laughs> you with me? In other words, <laughs> you know, we're entrepreneurs with a basic idea. When you frame this from the outside academically, Geez, it sounded impressive. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, so that, that's kind of like the difference between looking at a business evolve from the outside. It's often kind of academic and one where you live through what well, often hangers. And but I do think that we coalesced the science and the data quite quickly to a point where we started to understand the causality, the correlations, how you price these things. And again, it's been incredibly powerful. And and that's and that you believe is a, a category on its own. Behavior change is a category of its own today it's a it's a product and a deliverable all on itself i mean i see you know discovery then there's vitality there's, you've separated vitality out as a separate company even it, it does it yeah right yeah because it's got a well, value problem well we the, the, the work we've done we've done a lot of work with michael porter at harvard around that they've shared value so we've been working with our partners like manual life or aia in asia you know around around the concept of shared value insurance in other words we completely align to our customers if we can change their behavior we create economic value that we can share. We're completely aligned. If they're healthier, we're more profitable. So this concept, Michael Porter's concept of shared value. So to an extent, we're really trying to get the data right to illustrate shared value insurance as a category. You know, it's not a vitality is a proprietary element of it, but you know, we're really getting the data together. Where I think we're illustrating this is a, a it's a category, and I think COVID has just accelerated this obsession of wellness and resilience and health. You know, for sure. And, you, and, and you've got, I mean, I think you mentioned yesterday, uh, the, the flywheel effect that you've actually built is you've got 50, what did you say, what was it, 50 million? Ma- 50 million life years of, years of, yeah, person of, data. Years of, of data, yeah. And that data is showing what? And what's it showing in terms of outcomes? Uh, you know, you'd mentioned four, I'm assuming that's probably cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and I'm not sure what the fourth one would be. Uh, lung, heart, cancer, diabetes, that's right. Okay. So, but if you... I mean, the data is unbelievably compelling, you know. So, you know, the Vitality program works in status as blue through to gold. You know, uh, if you look at mortality levels, they're typically 30% lower or more gold versus blue. But if you cut the data by actual risk factors, by specific conditions, and you then look at the causality, it's unbelievably correlated. So people are physically active. Their chances of mortality is much, much lower. And now we're getting into the kind of the longitudinal understanding of the causal effects and understanding, for example, cardio fitness, not just steps, but actually understanding quality of physical activity, heart rate, these kind of devices like Apple Watch, let us see that stuff. It's remarkable. And I think through COVID, we've seen, I think quite tragically, just the resilience of, you know, people even 60 plus who are physically active and, and making healthy choices, far, far more resilient against mortality than people 40, you know, with certain you know risk factors. So, you know, these are, not everyone can do this stuff. And I think what's good about vitality, it's not for healthy people. It's to make people healthier. That is, whatever your risk factors are, can we kind of get personal pathways to and get you healthier? I mean, that's the key issue. Outstanding. So, um, um, sorry, the vitality age, you know, that was one of the things that I found really surprising when I first joined vitality myself. And I can't remember what, what I was, what my chronological age, as, as um, Moshe Milevsky says, how many times I've circled the, circled the sun. It's got no correlation to what my uh, expected mortality might be or what my longevity might be. There are other indicators, other factors. And I was surprised, I remember doing this, that my vitality age 
was significantly higher than what my chronological age was. And I'm assuming, and I'm happy to put it out there, probably blood pressure issues. Um, at the time, my BMI was probably up. And these were big factors. So I didn't see in the 18 months that I participated in Vitality, just I lost that program because the product that I had associated with, I converted to another one, no longer had the membership. Um, so I didn't see over time my Vitality age come down, which was an extraordinary algorithm in itself, whatever it was that you guys did to determine that. Um, but have you seen, have you, have you had people that have been on this system for a while who've seen their vitality ages reduced? Is that something you mentioned? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So people go through the statuses and one of the one of the behavioral measures is that vitality age. I mean, it's based on a lot of science and data, but it's to get exactly the kind of reaction you had, you know, I'm whatever 50 and my vitality age is 55. How do I bring that down? Mm-hmm. You know, trying to guide people through that. It's, it's super powerful. I mean, to have a vitality age equal to a chronological age, that's not the average. You've got to be free of any risk factors. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty good going. If you're 50 and your vitality age is 50, you're doing well. Right. You know, but um, it's a very correlated uh, measure to risk factors. I mean, it, it's really well done. Interesting. So um, the 80 20 rule. So it's interesting that you talk about wellness. You know, people don't spend as much time on wellness, but think, uh, immediate satisfaction on my on the sickness part of it. I, something happened, I go get my insurance, I get my treatment, I move on. But actually doing putting the effort into wellness. So we see benefit plans starting to move towards things like vitality and other things that might help people manage their health, et cetera. Um, so if you look at the whole, whole of a, a benefit program, vitality as well, at the same time as spending accounts, et cetera, um, do, how do these things move towards solving the 80-20 rule? In our world, we've been talking to customers about the fact that, you know, you've, again, total rewards, employers are spending this amount of their budget on from this percentage of their total rewards budget goes to health and wellness. But the reality is that in the old world, probably 20% of the employees are getting effective utility of those dollars, whereas the other 80% of the people are getting a reducing amount of value from that. And there probably is a reasonable percentage of people that are getting no value from that. And in yeah. fairness, it's, 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 they're entitled to it. It's part of their rewards, part of their compensation. So does the whole model of a savings account mixed with um, health and wellness incentive models, et cetera, how have you found that that has smoothed out the 80-20 or has it? I don't think it smooths out the 80-20. I think any insurance system is going to be a transfer from the healthy to the sick. You know, So the kind of the Pareto effect always happens, and it's a, it's a stubborn effect. I think just lowering the level of the average is what we're trying to do. And I think the critical point that I think you allude to is one of the problems of insurance systems is the 20% who's sick are, are obviously happy with the coverage. They, you know, they're consuming multiples of their premium. It's the 80% where you get you know, what we call adverse selection. People drop out of the pool. Right. So you get this kind of inflationary effect. I think the, the, the ability to incentivize good, healthy behavior keeps the 80% seeing value. You know, So two things happen, I think, in the pool. One is that hopefully you're making people healthier on average, and therefore, although you've got this 80-20 transfer, you've got a lower level of, of claim on average, number one. And number two, you're offering value uh, to the 80% who are not claiming at all. So they actually see value from the plan. We saw in the UK now, with the, it's an interesting case study, with a lockdown in the UK, private hospitals actually were, the NHS took them over. So people in private medical insurance um, couldn't actually use the benefits for months and months and months on end. But because Vitality offered them all kinds of stuff, they stayed in the plan. So the actual lapse rates in our people leaving was very low. So it has a, it has a very important actual effect on the price of health care. So if, you lo- if you're losing healthy people, your average cost goes up and that ends up hurting sick people. So... Sorry, it's a long actual answer, but it has some pretty profound effects on the on the risk pool. But I think, and I think it's important. I think this is really important that advisors and and employers and others get to understand these things, um, because I think it becomes also very practical um, at the at the level of of employers and and of you know again that engagement in people, keeping them. Um, and appreciating a certain value that actually translates into real value. Or, you know, in long-term value, um, 
that that's that uh, it's it's key. It's a key part of what we need to start to communicate and develop, especially in the Canadian context. Um, start to develop language around and have people because people here. I think it's part, partly as a partly as a result of us having what we've perceived to be a universal, fully public paid, free system where people don't really consider their responsibilities in it and and value in it and managing health, et cetera. So I think we've got to develop language. We may be a little bit behind here. Um, some more from other countries that have been involved in, you know, private funding of these things for many for, for over years and had to, had to create, do the hard work of creating the language and the communication capacity to describe these solutions and get them up into the marketplace. Um, so is the payoff of Vitaly as far as life and health insurance goes, um, is it is it like a long term? Is it an out there? It's 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 a it's a it's something for the the, the benefits will be gained in the future um, around longevity, et cetera, or is there also immediate payoff in reduced healthcare costs during the working years? So, you know, it's one thing to have a life insurance contract associated with vitality and therefore reduce longevity or increase longevity, um, increase life expectancy, reduce premiums because people are living longer, et cetera. Um, but an extended healthcare plan where people are going to massage therapists, chiropractors, et cetera, they've got their, you know, diabetic drugs, their hypertensives, et cetera. How does vitality uh, produce immediate results? Does it? It does. It does. But that's at the risk pool perspective. In other words, the individual may take time, you know, in terms of their behavior change and their effect on the risk pool. But the effect on the risk pool probabilistically happens quite quickly. So you get selection effect, you get this, adverse selection problem, as I mentioned, healthy people dropping out where the risk pools traditionally decline in quality. In this case here, you're holding the risk pool fairly solid if healthy people are staying in for benefits. So that has an effect on dropping prices. Um, And then over time, you get the behavioral effect. So the risk pool behaves differently from the get-go, even though the individual inside it may take time to kind of acclimatize and engage. But I think with the modern stuff we're doing today, the, the, the effects are quite quick. People taking Apple Watch and getting physically active. Those effects are relatively quick in terms of, you know, better health and, and whatever. But you've got to differentiate between the risk pool, which determines the price of health insurance and the benefits individual takes. In the case of life insurance, because life insurance is priced over the lifetime, we can offer a discount to life insurance based on engagement. And that is massive. So if you think about saving, I don't know, you know, 20% of your life insurance premium, 10% of your life insurance premium, for 30 years from the get-go, you know, the amount of dollars that you actually save. So the benefits individual sees from the segmentation is, is absolutely huge. But you didn't see, and that, let's just look in that, that transactional health spend as related to health savings accounts, et cetera. Because of vitality, did you see lower utility of some of these, you know, day-to-day drugs or your chronic care oh, drugs? absolutely. You do no, see absolutely. that? And, and no, that's absolutely. Reasonably, and, uh, okay. And if you so if you pair that with savings accounts, you get the savings accounts get an immediate effect. Because anything that's discretionary, I mean, we've done the data when people are spending their own money. As they run through the deductible, you see a change of behavior. So things like HRT, hormone replacement therapy, or you know, Ritalin for ADD, where a lot of the stuff is is sometimes discretionary, sometimes not. You you see the change in behavior when people spend their own money versus as soon as they're spending the plan money, that you know. Get the drugs anyway, I'll, I'll figure out later if I'm taking them or not, you know. So you get massive changes in behavior. So you can really make a difference to healthcare costs and the rate of inflation. So it's it's, it's actually a net positive on, in, in many regards. I mean, a lot of people, the conversation yesterday is, why would I move my deductible up? And, you know, there are going to be these few people out of my whole pool that are going to lose some coverage because they're going to, you know, they're going to have to make up the deductible with their, with their health spending account. Um, but really the, the benefits are, are beyond the flexibility that a person might have in terms of their control of the spend, but it actually incentivizes them to be smarter. That's what you're saying, right? It's smarter, Absolutely. more cognitive, a whole bunch of good things come out of it. Okay. So um, I'm just looking through a couple of the questions here. Um, so there's other, I want to move to a little bit of other technologies. I saw that you guys have got Taito on your website. Are you seeing these kinds of solutions, telemedicine, how are you seeing those being adopted? Um, is it is it a growing? Yeah, where do you see the future of that kind of that kind of solution? 
It's very, very early days. I mean, we've seen through COVID just a massive move online, you know, so, so in our local market here, we, you know, we, you half the market, the, uh, the move of doctors online are doing consultations, virtual consults, and, you know, using the tech to do that. We've got a very sophisticated digital ecosystem for them that prior to COVID uh, was not being used. And there was often, and I'm not sure in Canada if that's the case, but often regulatory issues about doctors need to see their patients first physically. COVID kind of just blew that away. You know what I mean? Suddenly doctors got to see their patients, they can't see them, and stuff has moved online. So the Tata Care is, is an early phase of the strong belief that people get a lot of this healthcare could be done remotely. You know, you can do all kinds of tests and diagnoses and through the technology, you can see the doctor or healthcare provider can see the stuff online. You know, they know the patient's history. So, you know, it's early days for things like Tata Care. We're experimenting, rolling it out. Uh, we're excited about that stuff. But I think the, the coalescing of digital with wellness, with electronic patient records. So the treating doctor can see, you know, your prevention regime, your physical activity, all those factors with your, you know, key, the key kind of uh, data about you and treat you and then have patient records at the same time. That stuff is, you know, that stuff is, I mean, that's here now. That's, I see it never, never going back. We've got a couple of minutes. So I want to ask you something that I left at the end. So, you know, I've heard you speak a little about South Africa before. And um, I guess, you know, we here in the Canadian context might not be that meaningful, but I do think that the South African experience has got lessons for, for all of society um, in terms of the way that, um, the way that apartheid came to an end, etc. And oftentimes, outside of, outside of South Africa, we hear only the downside and the violence, the the criminal violence, the poverty sustains, the electricity is always out. The country's in, but you've spoken differently about that, and it's 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 good to hear, quite honestly. So it's we're thirty years into the new SA. So what do you think are some of the essential takeaways? that um, we could all learn from the nation building that South Africa has been doing? Well, look, I think the, the miracle of coming out of apartheid into a country that ironically has incredibly good race relations. And I think we've got real issues about poverty and inequality. And a lot of that is, is race-based from the apartheid era. But to an extent, there's a massively emerging uh, black middle class um, in South Africa. So in fact, it's, it's bigger than the, the white the white middle class, which is a good thing. You know, so you're getting real transformation. Um, so there's real inequality issues, but the the irony is that the the um, the actual race relations are very good. And then I, you know, you, again, it's the positive and negative. There's a lot of issues here. Crime is at high levels. You know, I think we've controlled it and delivered it in many ways. There's a lot of challenges, but the actual major variables are dramatically better than than in the apartheid era. You know, people coming out of school size of, of, of wealth, size of the stock exchange, size of the economy. You know, I often ask people, because you have this like kind of bias, you know, is South Africa's economy bigger today per capita than it was, you know, at, at the change? And often you get people who live in other countries say, no, there's no way, it's really, they've heard bad news. And, you know, the economy, I think the numbers offhand here, but it's dramatically bigger per capita in dollar terms. So I often speak to people who live in the country that don't believe these numbers. It's a bit like the Stephen Pinker stuff, you know, when you actually look at, you know, how the world has got better. The country's got a lot better than it was. Um, it's full of challenges, but it's a it's a country with incredible, how can I say, um, granularity of just emotion of all kinds of things, of re- remarkable beauty, you know what I mean? And uh, it's it's a country you can make an impact in. I mean, I'm proud of what our organization has done. We're global, but we're proudly South African, you know, and have a, a strong view that we need to make a difference. I mean, this vaccine process now, we are at the forefront trying to help you know, make sure that the vaccine program is successful working with government. So it's a it's a rush of emotions. It's a beautiful country, as I think you know. It's full of challenge, but full of opportunity. You know, and it's a, it's a choice you make. But it's clearly a place as well that, that things like coming I mean, again, vitality, discovery, the, the, the that advance. And and I think to your point, it's a, it's certainly to your website, etc., and to some things you, you said. I think as a category, just vitality alone, you're you're influencing you're influencing certain standards across the world in terms of a deliverable and understanding of healthcare and, and how healthcare can improve. And it's really good to see that you're moving into the banking area as well. The, the auto insurance piece is intriguing. Um, and um, I don't want to, you know, but it's just not an area that I'm, again, it's clearly a place you can have effect, et cetera. 
I think in terms of employee benefits, et cetera, the banking side is another is, is a fascinating area. And the fact that you can use behavioral health and vitality to incentivize um, better financial management habits um, and behavior, I think is outstanding. And again, an area where hopefully South Africa will lead the way and be a, be a, be a light unto others in terms of what you do. It's, it's, it's awesome. Adrian, this has been outstanding. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Hopefully we'll be able to keep in, keep in touch going forward. But thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. All the best. We'll be in touch. See you. Mm-hmm.